I hear you guys go back centuries, as has said. Well, I've known Bill, uh, I've lost track of the time, but I think we were first introduced through uh, Ken Kanakin and the uh, Swiss meetings, which have been such a fabulous contribution to the, the world of strength and bringing together uh, the guys who do it like Kaz and the uh, knuckleheads like myself who try and make investigations to figure out the mechanisms a little bit. It really interests me because in a lot of your workshops and a lot of uh, times you're doing podcasts, you refer to as a, one of the greatest and he says exactly the same thing on how you both can combine your minds in performance, but also how the, actually the body works in its finest. And you always said about neural drive and you said that one of the greatest of doing that was CAS. Can we explain about neural drive and then see how CAS can interpret that in his own way? Yes. I've had conversations with Kaz and what he does and how he explains it is so perfectly consistent with our science. So it, it, it's always wonderful when he when I'll say to Kaz, well, why did you do that? And he'll says, well, I did it because it worked. And the his competitors didn't even know about it and know how it worked. And so it's always been so curious to me how Kaz sort of converged on these things. So that that's one uh, issue among, uh, on, on its own. But when, when people watch athletes like Kaz perform, they look at the weights being lifted. I watch the man. And when I see Kaz prepare you can see these deep mental thoughts. So what is strength? You know, you've heard Kaz say many times, I can, I will. Strength begins as a thought. The more dense the thought in your motor cortex, the denser the volley of neural signal that starts the whole process. So when I watch Kaz, his competitors might yell, they might use foul language, they might bang their heads. Of course, Kaz gets that state of arousal, but it's a very mental process as well. I mean, I've heard you lecture to kids, Kaz, over the years, and you can say, I feel the power of the Lord invading my body. And then I watch you, goosebumps come up on your skin, beads of sweat start to come off your temples. You have this ability to potentiate your body and densify that thought. So yes, there's an endocrine system and you're kicking in adrenaline in your very cerebral way, but you're also going to a dark place. And not too many strength athletes talk about this, but you, you've all seen examples of say, there's a woman who sees her child trapped under the car. Well-documented, she picks up the back end of that car avulses a bicep, crushed fractures of vertebra to get her child out. But the fact is she did it. She unleashed the fuse box. So now there are all of these internal fuse boxes in your body that won't let you destroy yourself. So the strength athlete is the one who can go to that very dense, dark place. And, you know, I've talked to a lot of strong guys and on the days that they're happy, and the days they cannot formulate that 
it's not an anger. And I, I want, Bill will describe what he's thinking. It's so much more than an anger. It, it is going to that fight or flight, willing to almost commit murder on your own body to get to that dark spot. Densify the neural drive, then you carry it down the nerves. Now, that's a whole different process of grinding exercise. We can talk about that. But maybe Bill wants to take off on that thought to really densify the charge that's going to lead the whole strength process. Doc, I love how you explain it, and I know all your listeners completely comprehend uh, you know, the knowledge and experience that you've put forth and how you extrapolate that. For me, there are a number of things that I can talk about. Uh, I don't think it's a dark place. I'll explain that in a minute. I think it's, a, of course, a place of, of bright white light from above. But uh, I think it starts with creating a sense of urgency. Understanding that the task before you is something where you really need to have focus. So I found that that focus happens uh, in the subconscious mind when you'll take a picture and you'll look at it and blink your eyes a thousand times, five thousand times. And what you're looking at is maybe Dave Draper's physique, uh, Lee Moran with a thousand pounds on his back. And you see that objective and you, you take a picture of it. And then that picture gets developed and becomes a puzzle. You cut the pieces out of that picture, make it into a puzzle where all the components of moving a weight in bench press or squatter deadlift or any obstacle, you have to understand what each piece has in relevance to how you move that resistance and that weight. And then once you understand and comprehend the concentric muscles, the eccentric muscles, you work on each piece, you put it in the puzzle, you do the activity, you take it apart, you work on it again, you analyze critique. And uh, you first have to understand just what is the obstacle and how you're gonna attack it biomechanically. But bringing forth that real power comes from those blinking of eyes, gets into the subconscious mind, you have a goal. You know, you dare to dream, you pick a goal, you shoot for the stars, you try to be the best you can be every day in every way. And it's that mental programming where you say, this is the most important thing in my whole life. Like that woman with her child under a car wheel, I imagine a light socket with my finger in it <laughs> or a hot grill with my hand on it. That reaction. But then I start to think about things like machines, caterpillars, backhoes, cranes, things with heavy hydraulics and huge motors. I think of a tractor that has a huge flywheel that starts to spin. That flywheel spinning with centrifugal force. And then all of a sudden in that wheel, there's a blade that sticks up and it comes around for that last time. It's going 500,000, 2000 RPMs and, and that cerebral cortex through the motor pathway that message is sent and there goes the force all directed at one thing at one time. I found it very easy to produce that type of power and focus by doing a lot of meditation and doing things that I really saw myself doing the activity. I use positive mental rehearsal, the motion picture of the mind. I pre-program myself to stimulate all senses mentally in the workout environment. Not only did I analyze what was going on 
that day, critiquing and analyzing each lift, the resistance, the rest period, how the weights felt. I also then, as I fell asleep at night, started to project under that screen what was going to happen the next day, what lifts, what resistance, how I was going to feel. And it was easy. Went through the, the range of motion. I saw myself. I heard the noises. I smelled the smells of the locker room, which are sometimes horrendous. And uh, I tried to stimulate all the senses that I could so that I was prepared. And we know success breeds success. And if you've done something in your mind many, many times, it's pretty easy to just see it and do it. So one of our markers in the gym before a lift was, see it and do it. Just see it and do it. Because you've seen it so many times before and you've done it so many times with success that we know that practice makes perfect. Nah, perfect practice makes perfect. And you can do that cerebrally. And if you're prepared in that fashion, for me, some of these things were very easy. And I'll finish with the, the dark place that Eddie Hall talks about. And, and you have mentioned, I consider it a white place. I saw three chairs. We get those fingers just right. I was sitting in one chair. Those other two chairs, I'd walk over and I'd feel fire, pain, torture, the weight on my back, bending on my knees and breaking on my hips and going down into a full squat and below position. And it was horrendously, just horribly painful. It was fire all around me. It was like hell. I would then see myself get up and walk over to the other chair. Now, between those two chairs, a beam of white light went into my head from above me. I basked in that beautiful glory of the Lord and God and, and that divine power. And then I got up from that chair and walked into myself. Three different entities, good and bad, good and evil. The good white light came and walked into me. I stepped under the bar. I felt like I lifted weight in celebration for what that man, Jesus Christ, did for us in dying on the cross. And I have a picture. It's on my Facebook page of Bill Kazmar, my professional page. And one of the photos, it shows a four-inch, 18-inch spiral of light, a perfect rivet of light above my head as I was walking under the bar. So there was something really special going on. I feel like I brought in a lot of energy and it was positive energy. It was L-O-V-E rather than F-U-C-K. And so many athletes try to bring in that negative energy. And I felt like when I squatted, it was so hard to get inside the bar I didn't fit. As I dropped below parallel and came out of the hole, so many guys drop in and they're on their way to hell and there's no return. Well, I had a gentle hand on my hips, my glutes, and on my shoulder, steadying me to go through that range of motion, get down, break the hips, go below parallel, set the hips and come back up and come up for a good lift with, let's say, one of my workouts was 900 for three outside the rack, no spotters, no loaders, 850 for five, sets of five at 800 and one set of 10. I did 775 for five sets of five outside the rack, no spotters, no loaders. Believe me, when 900's on your back and you go down and you don't have a spotter, you have created a sense of urgency. It really is a situation of do or die. But if you've done it again and again, and at that moment, it is the most important thing in your whole life. You're gonna do it. So that's shedding a little bit of light about how I mentally prepared and how I 
stimulated my whole system, especially the brain, flash that power from the cerebral cortex. I like your explanation better. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, 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 I wish my wife was here listening to all of this. Who Rocco knows Catherine. Uh, she's a sports psychologist now. And one of her areas of expertise is visualization. And you certainly took us through a rather unique process of visualization that uh, works for you. And that's why you're the CAS. You can, you can do that. I don't know if uh, there are very many other people that uh, can uh, create that same effect and confidence through the mind. Um, can, can I ask you, Bill? You did it, you did it 40 years ago. So yeah. It's, it's, not, yeah. it's not a new thought process. There were, Marty Gallagher and a few were trying to figure it out at the time. But as I said, you know, I did things that worked. There are so many things that I'll talk about here with you today that are just simply functional. And uh, there's, you know, there's no book written about it back in my day, and I didn't really read books anyway. So I had to kind of find my own path on my quest to greatness and climb that mountain on my own. I had a few coaches, but a lot of it was internalization and the, the understanding that there's going to be an obstacle in front of you, a hurdle. And you have to decide the biggest problem in any problem is realizing you have a problem. If, you, if you're going to move that resistance and others can't do it, you're going to have to step back maybe one or two steps and figure out how to get over that obstacle. You might high jump it. You might burrow under it, take a little, little more time. You might go around that obstacle and take the long way. Or you may just step back a couple more steps and go bam and go right through it. So finding that obstacle and understanding just what it is, the activity that you're about to do uh, and, and breaking that down into a, a process. You know, those three words of conceive, believe, and achieve really work well in this place where you pick a goal, any, any goal, short-term or long, or any event. You then analyze, critique, and understand what it's going to take to overcome that goal with a process. You make a plan. Then you execute that plan. You have to believe in the plan, believe in the objective, believe in yourself, and believe that maybe, maybe it's for a higher power and it might benefit others, and, uh, and you're supposed to do it. If you have that in place, conceive, believe, and achieve, it's a, it's a good way to get from understanding where you were to that position of where you are and where you want to go. It's fine to say that neural drive starts with motivation. What do you, you say, Doc? It's Well, I, I think that's what Bill has masterfully described the process as being. Can, can I take off on a couple of points that uh, Bill mentioned there? Yeah, I mean, you mentioned Marty Gallagher who's, uh, oh, uh, now, how long has Marty been in the strengths game? <laughs> Probably five decades now. I've had some fan fantastic conversations with Marty over the years of what you have described beginning as the mental process, but then the conversion of that strength of mind, that huge, dense thought of strength, and then sending that down the nerves. We can talk about grinding bench press and some of the things that we've talked about over the years to teach the nerves to carry such a dense signal. But going back to Marty, and I, I think of an old training partner, uh, McLaughlin, and I'm just having a senior's moment. Was that Jim McLaughlin? Tom. Tom, Tom McLaughlin, I'm sorry. I see photography and biomechanics. 
Exactly. I was talking to uh, McLaughlin. Oh, this is quite a number of years ago. And, and uh, he was a training partner at one time. And it was him who first told me how much, um, again, in your sort of quiet way, you didn't broadcast to the world that you were doing this, but this was just so magical given what we had discovered in the uh, laboratories with strong men and women. And that's the neural connection of your brain to the different neuromuscular compartments. So if you go back, you know, a number of decades, the physical therapists, not the, but a few physical therapists who are influencing the profession were saying, you know, try and swell up your multifidus and then work on other areas of your back. And our science showed that this was not possible. The brain organizes neuromuscular compartments, the activation compartments up and down your back. So talking to McLaughlin, he was saying you would cantilever out over the end of a bench. So, you know, we go back to, say, an Olympic great like Vasily Alexiev, who would take, you know, a 45-pound plate, do a Roman chair extension, which was nonspecific. It, it activated the whole erector spinae. But you had figured out you would cantilever out over the edge and pick an upper neuromuscular compartment. And then our science would say, go up and down, not side. And then you would cantilever out a little bit further, and then you would extend a bit. In other words, you were so insightful in connecting your brain to these different neuromuscular compartments. So when they were asked to respond from that huge signal of strength, they could. How, how, how did you, you know, I've, I've asked you, how did you know? And you, you, you've given me explanations, but for everyone else, how did you know that was Exactly the way we were designed. You just look at your exterior musculature and understand that that's so important in moving heavy resistance, but it's that spine, the internal. You know, when you're, you're doing a heavy abdominal exercise on, a, on a, a baby decline bench, sure, you're working abdominals. And if you turn sideways with a dumbbell, you're working external oblique. But think if you really go heavy. I did that. Uh, Baby decline, abdominal, uh, rotation those both left and right and center with a 100-pound plate for sets of 15. But then I turned over. On the side, of course, those external obliques, a 150-pound dumbbell, working not so much the oblique, more going after that spine and really getting over. Then turning over to a hyperextension, 45 degrees for a longer range of motion, four different exercises, regulars, Right elbow up, left elbow up, and then waves. The wave, as you, as you obviously know, low, low back, middle, low, upper, low, low, middle, 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 upper, middle, coming up so slowly and working the spine. We did a deadlift after squats and deads, which was called uglies. We got in the rack, put the bar at the knees, and we put our head down as low as we could. It was the ugliest position you could ever get in for deadlift. Look what's happening to that spine. Each segment is forced to contract. And you can describe all well, what's going on with muscles going this way, muscles going this way, up and down the spine. What I did on that hyper to, to choke up and move my chest forward and back from my diaphragm all the way to my pelvis, I'm hitting each piece, but I'm also twisting. That spine is so strong so that when I set up, 
with what I figured was a lot of weight, 900 pounds on my back, uh, I felt nothing. When I went to break my hips, I levered myself down. I sat in a perfect position, gave up my hips, went below parallel, came up over reset, and came back up. But here's what I did with my back. It wasn't just straight, so many lift like this. Mine was hyperextended to the point where I had such heavy spinal erectors, as well as all the muscle development uh, on the spine, that I was a superstructure. And as I lifted away, you guys talk about weights being heavy. When you take a weight, and you, it's only heavy if you think it is. And if, it, if it's a lightweight, baby, like Ronnie Coleman says, it's just a peanut, it's bam, it's done that fast. There goes the message, there goes the object. Uh, speed lifting and the things guys talk about today, speed deadlifts that guys are doing now and record and, and put on YouTube, I think are actually in slow motion. And I don't get it because the stuff I did was always speed. And I think when you're training that neuro, neurological pathway and the response, it's literally it's like a sewing machine. The reason I was able to jack a heavy weight was because I never lifted a heavy weight. I lifted medium weights like they were nothing. Medium heavy weights like they were really easy. And heavy weights, I still like in bench went my last set after a 15 set routine in bench press was it was 550 for five fives. That started with two plates, three plates, and four plates for 20s, five plates for 10, which is 500. Back down after the five sets of five at 550 to 465 for four sets of 10. Two high and wide, two narrow and low, and we made one inch difference in grip for sets of 10 at 465. The last set. Speed work, exhaustion, 430 for 25 reps. How was I able to take that hydraulic cylinder and lower it and get to a point where I was ready to contract? Because that's how I trained. Everything was maximal or submaximal and super high reps. The guys of today are just doing nothing. Sorry, I'm getting off into another tangent, but other stuff that I think is valuable to understand just how all this works. You really have to overcome the resistance and you have to prepare each piece of that puzzle so that it's literally bulletproof. And we go back to actually not reinventing the wheel, but actually reintroducing how things work. You gave me gold there, Bill, again. Oh, I could do this for hours. And we will, my friend. The, the speed work that you just described is how you then get the muscles to respond to that strength of signal. So when I measure the density of neural drive, the strength of the thought, we use EMG to measure how much is carried. The faster you think, the denser the neural drive. So you just nailed it. So if, if I was to do a slow squat versus thinking fast, I've just boosted the neural drive. So again, you did it and somehow you knew all this science, which is, is, is magnificent. Okay, but can, can, I, can I, sorry? Can I interject just to follow your thought? I thought of a sewing machine for squatting. And non-lockout, so that I had constant tension on the hip flexor, which was developed. You know how I learned about the hip flexor and its importance in deadlifting? By looking at four pictures. 
Rachmanov, Kizarenko, Alexeyev, and Rieger in a step-by-step Ironman pictorial of their different uh, phases of the movement for snatch and clean and jerk. And I realized they had a knot at the top of their quadricep. Well, that hip flexor, I believed, was responsible for keeping you down so that you're in this position when you squat and when you deadlift, and you can keep your hips down and use leg drive to come straight up just like a machine. And uh, that was simple to me. It worked, and it worked for them. I could visually see it and identify it uh, without much problem. So I did sewing machine, not lockout squats. And gosh, before my heavy deadlifts, I went 300 kilos for sets of 15. The first 10, non-lockout. That hasn't been done in history. People don't train the way I did. The guys of yeah. today really don't understand because they didn't live in our era when heavy iron and Kowalski and Eddie Cohen and there's you know, Reinhold and Cuck, Cole. These guys were super athletes that trained so hard and they really were into the iron and not much else. Yeah, you're mentioning some fabulous names, and I think some of the common techniques. You know, your sewing machine. Uh, you know, I've 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 talked to not all the people you mentioned, but a good number of them. And you know, the piston squats through the sticking point is the sewing machine you describe, and these are old time techniques that the uh, the uh, social media generation it's been lost a little bit, but. Another thought that you brought up that was going through my mind when you were describing the three-dimensional training of your spine, the front, the sides, the back, not with huge weights, yet again, creating that wisdom between your brain and activating all of this. And I don't think, you weren't at the World's Strongest Man commentating at Mogadishu in Africa, were you? That, that wasn't yours. Anyway, there was a, an event there, and it was so interesting for me to observe. And it takes me back to the, the uh, classics like you. They had an event where they got under a jig, and they had to squat 750 pounds for reps. And they just went down, hit hit depth, and came up. So basically, it was um, a piston squat. Now, say a fella got to uh, 13 reps. I think the winner got to 17 reps. But the point is, go back to the rep before failure. And you'll see the mechanism of failure every single time. And there was a little instability. So you were talking about the three-dimensional training and the role of the hip flexors, etc. You would see, uh, now going back to that, that Mogadishu, world's strongest man, they'd go down, up and down, and then say they, they finished at 17. Go look at the 16th rep and you'll see the mechanism, a little shift. They slid out. Either their hips slid out, their spine slid out. In other words, they lost a little bit of stiffness, control, and stability. And what we've measured is as soon as the brain senses that little micro movement, the instability, the fuse box comes on and shuts down the neural drive, and you become weak, and you can't get the next rep. So now I go back to Kaz training and what you did, training that three-dimensional core of iron to unleash your hips, and then giving the hips a mechanism to correct. In other words, you had a hip flexor. 
you had some meat in the back to, to control the extension. So if that little shift or mistake ever came, you could correct it with your hips and not forcing the spine to correct, which shuts down the strength in the neural drive. So yet again, there you go, a perfect um, uh, implementation of uh, the science. But anyway, there's my take on, on the same thing that I've observed for years. Doc, to take that a little bit farther, you, that sewing machine, non-lockout squat, you know you're not going to be perfect on every rep and you're off balance. If you unload or misload the weight just slightly, say 44, one, 20 kilo plate on each on one side, heavier than the other, and you do your squats and you do your deadlift that way, you're going to develop yourself so that you're used to getting out of position, uh, losing your balance and equilibrium, and thereby having the ability to adjust mid-lift on a maximal lift. Well, that's exactly what we do, and I know you did it, was to train a recovery strategy with a lighter weight. Again, training the brain so that, you know, you don't have to do it with your back. You do it with your hips. You do it as a leaning tower through the ankles. You do it with a knee shift, whatever. But it keeps the strength going rather than... I'll tell you what a workout I did in the squat, 775 for five sets of five, maybe six weeks out going into a competition, no spotters, no loaders. On the third rep, third set, it was the hardest thing I ever did. I got out of position. I fought and made the lift and did two more reps and two more sets. It's do or die. And uh, yeah, just that training of offsetting the weight had me ready so that when that was out of position, I... Uh, I was able to recover. I've got some stories about times I wasn't able to recover. I went to the Auburn Cup and I had two coaches wrap my knees, one each. I was wrapped differently. As I came up out of the hole with 900 pounds, I corkscrewed. I tore one abductor and one adductor and I fell to my face screaming, fudge. I didn't know where the weight went. There were six angels behind me that caught the weight midair. I fell to my face. And an hour later, a little more, I staggered up onto the stage, one leg wrapped, I could hardly walk, and did the world record bench press without any kind of leg drive or balance. So it brings to mind some of the uh, Paralympic uh, bench presser lately who did 300 kilos with no legs. They strapped him to the bench. That day they didn't strap me down and I couldn't push with my feet. And I was just so happy when the, the bar was twisting and moving, I was able to press it to arm's length. But you really do need all the systems working in the body. And the body is so complex that it takes literally a genius to kind of figure out just how every muscle works in the lifts. There's so many things to talk about. I just love your approach because you're a lot like John Garhammer. Mike <laughs> Stone, Tom McLaughlin, and Terry Todd at the Strength Research Center. He had a PhD, I believe, in, in biomechanics and a master's in math. He did, yeah. We would sit and talk. And he was so gracious, like you. He would dumb down his answers to my questions in a way where I could completely comprehend. And he was literally a genius with movement science, with kinesiology. And I learned, uh, I learned and shared with a guy like that. And it is so incredible that us practitioners can actually talk to somebody who has your expertise and your knowledge and your experience at the highest level where you're actually, you're the one writing the papers, writing the books, and we're the ones out there just trying to figure it out, banging our head on the wall and, and using deductive reasoning 
to move forward. So wonderful. Well, it, Thanks so yeah, much. Yeah. Well, again, you, I mean, how many people these days would know John Garhammer? And how would, I don't know where John is. I've lost track of him. Yeah. But, um, you know, you went out and you sought the people who uh, could give you a little bit uh, of, uh, of the edge. Um, I got so many thoughts and questions. Do you want to maybe lead this, Rocco, uh, to the next thought? For me, seeing it from a young practitioner's uh, perspective, uh, first of all, that must be amazing in actual work because I'm not going to talk about the keyboard warriors out there because I've seen you in the lab. I've seen you treat professional athletes. I've seen you following your work. We've done work together. And I can see what we're saying about super stiffness, that powerful tool that a lot of people mock. And you can see it now, like 40 years ago, that the, it's been used in, since then for the, the greatest, as you say, it's used again. How would, you always talk about strength requires proximal stability in order to have distal strength. How can we interpret that and what actually CAS does? Well, in many different ways. One, you can't push a rope. You can only push a stone. So uh, CAS will describe and, and Maybe he should uh, take over this, but how he would create that stiffness to unleash his hips. In other words, I, I, let me do bench press. So say I, I can't, but say I could bench press 400 pounds. I would develop my big bench presser, which is my pec major. Pec major is just crossing one joint, my shoulder. So distally to my shoulder, pec major flexes my arm, creates the press, no problem proximal, it bends my rib cage towards the shoulder. So if I had no proximal stability and I could bench press 400 pounds and I'm on the boxing uh, offensive line in the NFL, if I used that beautiful bench press muscle, well, it's not a very effective push, is it? So my proximal energy leakage stole from the distal desired effect. So when Bill says, okay, he locks up on bench press, he gets leg drive. What he's doing is stiffening the fascial exoskeleton. So, you know, guys wear lifting suits. Why? It's an exoskeleton of stiffness. But Bill creates a stiffness through his body. So it's, it takes away the energy leaks that are proximal, that he can bench press an enormous amount, but he locks up the leak proximal to the joint so that 100% of that bench press muscle is now expressed distally. Whack! And then he thinks fast and does everything perfectly to send that neural drive, but now to a mechanism that he's firing from a battleship. He's not firing off a canoe. That is the beginning of the discussion of uh, super stiffness and proximal stability. And then, you know, I've, I've measured this. I'm sorry to say this, but, you know, we would take a, a rat and on one side, we would separate the three layers of the abdominal wall, keep it all intact, same blood supply, et cetera. We'd measure the force and the stiffness created by those three muscles controlling the core and the spine. And then on the other side, we would leave it intact. Then we would measure the force and the stiffness. When the muscles are intact and they form this fascial system, you're taking a single sheet of wood, 
like a like a piece of maple mm-hmm. and cutting it up and turning it into plywood. Mm-hmm. And the plywood forms a composite. It's the same amount of wood, but you've turned your body into a composite that becomes super stiff and super strong. So the rat muscle, when all the muscles are separated, each muscle contributes to force and stiffness. But when they're all held together with a fascia, they become super stiff. So I could grip your hand and I could squeeze you as hard as I could, or I can stiffen down. I can lock into the ground, root with my toes and my heels, compress with tech and lat, harden my neck, think the dense thought, however you choose to do so, and then squeeze and your grip strength goes way up. That's the importance of all of our body wars as a single synchronous system. And that's what we forget. If you have a well, problem in your ankle, that would change the biomechanics of your whole body. And we need, when we say about the, uh, densifying neural drive and actually uh, the creating that super stiffness, it creates overall strength and stability. It, 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 it does. So we go back and forth. It's, it's the... Um, it's the music, if you want to think of it that way. So Bill was describing how he was connecting the different parts of his body, thinking and using drills to get his brain, knowing where all the muscles were. And then he stiffens and locks in to create one single muscle. So we don't have discussions of agonists and antagonists anymore. They all become agonists to this stiffness and then just unleashing through the joints that matter shoulder the hip the knee but if you lock the core i mean he used you know you become a crane and if, if a crane is driving a spaghetti noodle doesn't matter what comes out of your hips but when you lock it up and the crane drives the base look out has any special techniques well sure in describing uh, breaking down uh, just how i approach the bench press as you so eloquently described how it actually works for me that picture came to about eight pieces. I call low pack, low pack, middle pack, upper pack. I know there's no middle, but there is no man's land between the two. I also know that the pectoral brings, it's its most efficient coming down and across the body. So to ask it to lay down supine and do a bench press upward and backward is really asking it to do something it wasn't designed to do. If you did a decline bench press, that's much more like the way the pectoral was designed. So when I say I did a wider grip bench up high on the chest, I filled in no man's land and the upper pectoral. I did a narrow grip, one inch narrower and down low on the chest. I was really emphasizing low pack and inner tricep for the explosion off the chest. For me, that bar press was simply just a launch and ride. I even broke down the hand grip. If we look at the hand and the bar, I started it as high on the pinky finger as I could. And as I went through the range of motion, I'm being dramatic there, but I let the bar slide so that my elbow could flare out. I didn't actually lift the weight. I levered the weight, pushed it up with all I had, let it ride back up over my face. And I believe that the scapula and the rhomboids, infraspinatus, all have a lot to do with how that elbow flares. And uh, to me, 300 kilos was really no weight. I did it with a torn pectoral. Ah. <laughs> 10 days before, I did 633 for three. My coach so eloquently said to me, Bill, don't do three. You're going to get hurt on the third. Boom, boom, ouch. 
I did 575 for five on a down set and said, my pack is fucked. The next, I'm supposed to bench two days later, I skipped it. A, a week after the injury, I went to an exhibition in front of a business group for diversified products and did 500 pounds for 10 reps. I said, my pack is screwed. It was the worst peak you could ever think of. I didn't do another bench. I went to the meet and gingerly took 639 for the world record, keeping my elbows in, and then did 661. That day I was probably good for 685.90. Could you imagine, Stu, if I would have specialized on pectoral, deltoid, brachialis of the forearm, uh, tricep, increased my body weight and stopped squatting and deadlifting, how much I would have bench pressed? Overnight, in an eight-week cycle, I would have done seven and a quarter, maybe more, seven and a half. In one year, Maddox would be chasing my record of 800 pounds. If I was a specialist, and I only weighed 340. If I would have taken my body weight to 370 or more, good God, 800 pounds plus in the raw bench press. But I was never a specialist. I always wanted to do all of these uh, athletic endeavors. And understanding that my hero in my whole life, besides my cousin Dick, who was a Heisman Trophy winner at Princeton, was uh, Jim Thorpe, the great Native American from uh, Carlisle, Pennsylvania. My family grew up in Altoona. And as I read his book, the first book I ever really read, he won the decathlon, the pentathlon, and the 1904 Olympic Games was named the greatest athlete of the century at the time and was a baseball player and football player. So I wanted to be like him and do all 10 events anywhere, anytime against everybody and beat them in all of them. And I just about pulled that off in 81, even with a torn pack. Fabulous. I, I, I remember uh, saying to my students one time, we were just having a clinic. So we'd had the lecture and we all went to the gym and I said, okay, how many of you know how to bench press? They all put up their hands. I know how to bench press. Well, about a month before you'd given us a bench press lesson. It was at, at Swiss and, and you, I can't remember how much I added, but steering up the ramp and some of the twists that you showed us with the pinkies and, and, you know, it's such a fantastic science. And, uh, we went through that and, uh, I gave them a Bill Kazmaier lecture of, it started out as supposedly 10 minutes and we, we worked for about two hours and all of their bench presses went right up just with some Bill Kazmaier coaching 101. But anyway, there's a little story and feedback for you. Thank you for that respect. Um, I'm really interested because, uh, so you talked about injuries before when we're talking about the uh, squat and you could observe actually what happened. You say all the time about injuries happen at the highest level of stress. Um, and you've measured that numerous times. Um, yeah. I'm really interested to hear both of your opinions on regarding that, how you can actually see the flaws and how we can actually take it. Cause I know you've been, there's some injuries. I know so you've seen a lot of injuries happen and you've saved a lot of people from a lot of pain and discomfort and how can we avoid that? Or what are the messages we should listen about feedback? What should look? Oh, do you want to start bill or do you want me to yeah, take I'd, a stab? I'd love for you to explain how I did this one. World's strongest man competition in squat of cement blocks in a Smith type rack, which was rather unstable and shaky. I went 870 and tore basically a hamstring. So what do you do when you make a lift? You wrap it and you go 950. And I tore the other one. So now <laughs> the deadlift is the next event. 
The 300 warm-up that I picked up was excruciating. I could hardly lift it. The second lift was 600, last warm-up before 700 on the platform. I was stiff-legged and using all back. My hammies were gone. I then went 800, 900, 925, 50, 75, 1,000, 1,000, 25,000, 50, with two torn hamstrings and a stiff-legged deadlift. People on the internet would try to say, Kazmaier doesn't know how to deadlift. He doesn't bend his legs. He'd have so much more power. They don't know about the injury. Uh, so I basically, when I was injured, totally ignored the injury and just modified my technique whenever and wherever I could. After the squat injury, uh, with corkscrewing at Auburn with 900, within two days, I was doing 50 reps in front of the squat rack, body weight. I went to see the doctors at the clinic, Houston clinic, and they looked at me, they looked at the hematoma in my legs, and I said, hey, docs, there's some pretty intelligent guys. Any chance of me squatting 900 in the next 12 weeks? I'm going to Worlds. And they looked at each other and laughed and said, ah, no problem for you, Bill. Well, within a week, I was at 135, 225, doing 25s and super high reps. I got uh, 865 in the meet, and they called me high, and I definitely was at depth. So the kind of recoveries that I was able to do was simply ignoring injury, of course, addressing it with ice, compression, elevation, doing the best I could. Uh, many, many injuries that we could spend a lot of time at it, but how I was able to overcome those things, I think it was just by modification of technique and utilizing other muscles and a will that just said, I won't quit. I, I, I can't explain it other than to say, if you're the best in the world, you're at the end of the spectrum of biology, being a human. You're at the end of the spectrum of psychology. You're at the end of the spectrum of neurology. If you're the best in the world, you've been touched by the hand of God and you've put all of these various features together. That's one half. The other half is you've steeled your body through exposure. So cells, the language of communication from one cell to another is force. That's what causes what we call mechanostimulation. You've, and, and some tissues you can change very quickly, like muscle strength is something that responds very quickly to stimulation. Tendon strength takes quite a bit longer. Ligament strength takes even longer yet. Bone strength takes even longer yet. So, you know, when I measure the bone density in the grand old women and the grand old men of strength, and then I get their x-ray report and the radiologist says, oh, this person has sclerotic bone, as if they're um, an old arthritic person. And I said, no, that is the product of mechanostimulation for the years that they've spent under the bar. Yeah. So you were, you were, yes, you, you've had injuries, but you weren't starting as a normal uh, uh, specimen of the human condition. You were already steeled. So, uh, I, I don't know if that's my two 
two cents on it. Uh, it's it's part of who you who you are, and you thank your parents for that. And it's part of who you are in the training for the years that you had done. But in building that bone density and, and tendon and everything, I really tried to go under super heavy load. But that would only be uh, the description of people's thinking about weight. For me, after heavy squats, I would do partial squats where I did, the guys sometimes today are squatting this high, four inches. At that height, I did a set of five at a thousand after my heavy squats. And so I really loaded my system. When I was doing rack work, I was pulling in excess of 100 over what I was taking off the floor and doing it in a variety of positions. So I was putting the body under great stress. But here's one of the problems and the mistakes I made. I realized that guys that trained once a week heavy for seven weeks, were, for, 40, for seven weeks we're gonna have literally 49 workouts, uh, but 42 workouts and uh, seven of those are heavy. Well, I went heavy squats one day, then uh, heavy bench the next day, then back and arms, then heavy deadlifts the third day. And literally had two days rest in between the heavies. And when I was doing heavy squats, I did super heavy partial deadlifts. When I did heavy deadlifts, I was doing super heavy partial squats. I never really let the neurological system recover. I was always overtrained. And as far as the skeletal system, uh, recovering, re regenerating and building bone, I wasn't cognizant at all because I was heavy all the time. Pretty interesting because you always say about four or five days about the lifts. I would usually say in order to build more callus on the bone, and you've measured that as well. Um, Cass, we had a chat before about you were going heavy all the all time, but then you were changing the way you were loading your body. Can we say that that was beneficial? Well, he's is not human, but um, is that uh, a way of actually building more callus rather than just going over and over again? Because we've seen, you know, how younger athletes are exposed to more injuries now because they're not actually following protocol. And as we know, you cannot cheat biology. Right. Well, we have to be careful here in looking at one of the greatest strength athletes of all time as an example for us mere mortals. And you get in trouble looking at fabulous athletes and trying to emulate what they could achieve and how they could train. So I'll just put that as a little bit of a caveat. But tissues adapt through the signals of stimulation in different ways. Bone, I'll, I'll just give an example of bone. Say I fractured uh, my, my uh, radius here, the long bone of my wrist, and I got a little bit of a crack. When you bend a bone, the outside of the bone goes into tension and the inside goes into compression. Bones are metallic and piezoelectric. So what I mean by that is if you take a crystal, like a quartz crystal of rock, and I take two pieces of quartz and it's nighttime and I scrape them together, lightning will flash through the quartz. And, you know, kids do this. We'll pick up a couple of pieces of quartz and create the lightning. Because what you're doing is bending the crystalline structure and a piezoelectricity, uh, the piezoelectric material builds an electric charge and releases it as light. 
bone is piezoelectric. So when you bend your bone, ah, <laughs> okay, yeah, mm-hmm. you're ahead. Of, you're ahead of the curve again on me. So anyway, when you bend a, a crystal, which is bone, it creates an electric charge. So how does the force stimulate more bone growth? It does it through electric charge. This is the fantastic muscle memory of bone, so to speak, and load memory. So the bone creates a charge where it's stressed the most. There's free-floating ions of the building blocks of blown in the plasma and, and in your blood, magnesium, calcium. They're all ions. They get sucked through electric attraction to the site of highest stress, and then they bond. Okay, so you've just created a callus. But if you do a heavy deadlift today, and then you do it tomorrow, you just broke off the scaffolding that you, in other words, uh, we learned this in, in for space travel because astronauts are trying to retain bone, but they did experiments on turkeys where they would bend the turkey wings and see how long it takes for the callus to form. The optimal time is a lot longer for bone. So if you did a deadlift stimulated through the piezoelectric activity, more bony callus on the bone site with the highest stress, to build a callus and a, and a, and a, and a an electrical bond, a chemical bond that won't break off takes four or five days. So, Kaz, you would do uh, heavy deads one day, bench the next. Let's assume that you laid off the end plates. You were then you went to uh, heavy uh, squats or something. It would have been more beneficial for building structural bone. To have more time off. So if you talk to guys like Ed Cohn and whatnot, I've had extensive discussions with uh, Ed for as, as an example, to train a heavy dead and then take four or five days off when you're in the phase of training, not competition phase where you're tapering down for competition. This is the other four or five months where you're building your body again and you just dial it back and you build the bold building blocks of carrying load in your body. It's much closer to a four or five day cycle for bone. But again, I, I'm assuming that Bill, Bill, you, you chose your mom and dad well, and uh, they gave you the gift of a strong skeleton. And, uh, you know, that's sort of the way it was. Back then came from German heritage, Katzmeier and Steinhoff. So I'm not really sure about all that back from Bavaria, Wuttenberg, Germany. I ended up being the way I am. Uh, really hard telling what has intervened in the process of growth. But to discuss another bone tendon injury, I was wrestling and getting ready, wrestling professionally, and also getting ready to break Louis Sears one arm dumbbell press, which was 268. But one week I went 220, then 240, then 260. I was about to do 280 and I was doing 200 pound dumbbells chain between my legs for dips. As you know, a very dangerous thing to do to the tricep tendon. Uh, I had a little bit of pain there in the right arm and I went for a wrestling match and I pressed overhead a guy who weighed three and a quarter and he didn't help like he was supposed to and he was way off balance. I ruptured the tricep, fell to the mat. He was on top of me. I said, man, 
Am I screwed? He said, you sure are. You're, I'm supposed to, you're supposed to win, and I'm on top of you. Well, he threw me out. I wrestled two more days. I went to my doc, and Dr. Richard Herrick, he put the tendon back on with an epidural so I could watch sort of what he was doing on the screen and listen to him. We communicated during the surgery. He said, Bill, I'm using 30-pound test line. I'm shortening your tricep by about a quarter inch. Uh, it should be good to go. Uh, after the surgery, I, I, he put on a cast. I came back seven days later with the cast off. He said, Bill, where's your cast? I said, well, that TENS unit you gave me, I decided not to stuff up inside the cast. I just put it on and took the cast off so that I could move my arm back. He said, well, Bill, the general idea of a cast is to keep it immobilized so they can. <laughs> I said, well, when can I start using my arm? He's, I said, I got a competition in eight weeks from the surgery day. He said, Bill, you could probably take a 10 pound weight and do a French press. I went to the competition. The shot put was 20 pounds. I said, well, 10 and 10 is 20. Uh, what the hell? <laughs> Nothing happened. I think there was a little nerve damage. I couldn't quite feel it. At, at, at eight weeks, I beat everybody in the world in the muscle power class, which is equivalent to the world's strongest man, including Higgins, Reeves, Capes, Sigmar Sun, the whole group, eight weeks after surgery. At 12 weeks, I did a 242-pound log 32 times. At 16 weeks post-surgery, I did the world record 375 pounds in the log press. And the look on my face, the commentator said, oh, he's giving another glare to John Paul Sigerson. No, the look was of fear and fright and, the, and knowing that the tricep could have come off again. Was it healed? No way. It held on by 30-pound test line, I guess. Credit to my surgeon. How long does that actually take to heal back? I... <laughs> Depends on very what eight twelve weeks. It it, it it depends. Yeah, it's it's funny you mentioned Louis Sear, the great uh, Canadian strongman who really was one of the first to have some of his feats of strength documented. You know, prior to that, it's word of mouth and and that kind of thing. But uh, uh, his his were documented, and of course, I never met Louis because he died uh, a century ago. But I've spoken to his grandchildren and uh, some of the family lore on how he would train and what he would eat and, and this kind of thing. But, you know, here's, here's a Kazmaier Sear story. As far as I know, <coughs> excuse me, you're the only man in history who replicated Louis Sears uh, holding the uh, dumbbells out uh, laterally. And there's a name for that feat of strength, and I forget what it is, but you're the only man who's ever done that, isn't it? Aren't you? Yeah, a crucifix holders. That's it, the crucifix, there yeah. One, there was one that was 89 and one that was, I want to say, 101. Right. So didn't even they, were, they had a little bit of stress. And I made the mistake of getting on television while the other athletes were forced to watch because I was the previous champion at La Defi Mark 10. I took the dumbbells and raised them to the side and held them, lowered them, and did it five more times. On the sixth time when I held, something in my shoulder went... The next night, I had to throw a 56-pound block off the back of the semi-truck into a sand pit for distance. I could hardly move my shoulder. It was starting to swell and hurt so bad. These shoulders, I haven't held up. I broke the world record that night. Uh, 
But uh, yeah, Louis Sears lifts to me were phenomenal. His diet was even more incredible. 10 pounds of meat, 20 pounds of vegetables, and a gallon of beer at one sitting. And we wonder why he died at 35. Uh, I'm not well, sure. his his liver gave out. Was it the was it the meat? Uh, th- <laughs> this is the uh, well, uh, you know, uh, the meat and uh, bull's testicles and all kinds of things in an effort to. I mean, that was the old way of uh, getting um, supplements. And he was, and some of the lifts that he did. For me, uh, were just incomprehensible. Doing yeah. uh, hip and thigh, 17, 1800 pounds. Yeah. That's just so much weight. We talked about another injury. We were doing something in Canada, the Defi Mark 10. We put on our shoulders upwards nearly a ton. We started 1500 pounds and go up a one inch lift. What happened to me, Doc, and I could have been paralyzed. At 1,800 pounds, I had put a four, an eight-inch belt on my waist, and I was in a full sweat, had the bar as low on my back as I could, and my spine went literally tearing all the muscles. Within 30 minutes, there was a half a melon of hematoma between my shoulder blades. I didn't go to hospital. I went to my hotel room and laid on a bubble all night and was in such excruciating pain. The only thing my doc did when I got back was put some cortisone and, uh, in it and I literally recovered, but I could have been paralyzed from the chest down. And imagine what? so much force upward that the thoracic just went. Yeah, it was the bubble you were laying on your back with the bubble underneath you? The bubble was blood underneath my skin. Oh, I see. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. I tore, yeah. I tore everything. So, again, the story of Kaz's life is the severe injuries and being able to come back without a whole lot of medical help. Chiropractic helped me a great deal. Yeah. continually. But realize that the bar for squatting was so small, it was the normal bar. Until Passanella brought one along that was 10 pounds heavier and five inches wider inside or more. I couldn't fit inside the bar because I had so much pectoral development that I couldn't get the bar down my back. I couldn't get my hands inside the collars. So what happened? That bicep tendon that sits in the groove and has a sheath over it, the sheath tore off. The tendon came out of the groove. The day after squat, I couldn't bench press 135. My chiropractor would take the tendon and rotate, he would grab it and rotate the shoulder and pop it back in. Yeah. And then I would go out up to big big benches. So imagine if I wouldn't have done squat and would have let that heal and would have increased that front deltoid raise from 100, 120 to 150. And the tricep presses from sets of 20 at 400 and 440 to 500 and 550. What kind of bench press that would have been if I would have put that puzzle together without squat and deadlift as we addressed a little bit earlier, but these injuries uh, that I suffered were really, uh, I don't know. If someone told me that it was gonna hurt me to squat 800 for 10 pounds, would I have listened? I don't think so. So how do you give advice to these guys today when, is it Larry Wheels takes his training partner over there in Dubai and 
jacks up his incline bench by 100 pounds over PR, and he on film shows him blasting a pack. I've strained packs, torn them, but he tore that thing right off. Like what yeah. happened? Steel barbell, uh, career-ending stuff. So uh, I think word to the wise: the things that I did started with a small weight, and then incrementally went to bigger weights. A big base yields a high peak. If you have a small base, you can't go vertical up to these huge weights. You have to build over time and incrementally cycle. And that periodization, I think, was our old school. But uh, the training of today, I don't know, with uh, squatting every day like a Russian method and things like that, I don't know that your body recovers, muscle recovers, or even your neurological system. Maybe you can you care to speak about some of that frequency and intensity. Well, I, I don't. I only generically, not specifically, until we get the the athlete in front of us and and we start to understand their response to training a little bit more. But uh, in general, I think that was my comment earlier. You built such an incredible base, and uh, what would tear apart a normal man, you were able to build from once again. Um, you did mention getting under bars that were 110%, 120% of your PR. And that's uh, something we do today. And uh, again, it's not in the social media realm of uh, training, but it's just yet another example of how you would densify the neural drive and then build the concrete pillar to bear the load underneath. So when you take 120% of, say, your best squat on your back and just descend for four inches and come back up, you're learning, first of all, you're learning the mental confidence that you talk about. You know you can and you will, and you're going to control that bar. But just to learn how to control, if you, if you can... Uh, squat 800, just to feel what a thousand feels like, and then leaning tower forward one millimeter, and then back one millimeter, and just learn to feel and control that weight. That is the wisdom of developing this ability to overcome little micro mistakes when you're when you're uh, in competition, say at your PR that you're trying to break. So that's another thing that I, uh, it just was, it's, it's just from you. It's just one piece of gold after another that, uh, I, I think of, uh, Oh, I was measuring that person and that's exactly what we measured or violated or, or whatever. It's fabulous. I wish I, I wish I had you back in our mm -hmm. clinic and our laboratory, uh, 30 years ago. <laughs> who have understood just what I was doing and not being in the dark about it all. You know, I asked a famous lifter called Dr. Squat to watch oh, Hadfield. <laughs> training one day and I was just getting into powerlifting. I think my lifts were 760, 545 and, and uh, I want to say 700, just starting. And I said, Fred, will you, I was living in his gym, sleeping under the dumbbells or in the sauna. I was homeless. I dropped out of college and uh, I said, Fred, will you watch my squats? I need some help. He goes, go on, Kazmaier, get out of here. I'll squat 800 before you do. So he really helped me a lot with my lifting. 
And one of the things I learned from him through observation was what he called compensatory acceleration, where he literally went ballistic and taking lifts through the range of motion at that maximal rate of speed. And I think our, as I explained sometimes in Swiss, if you lift a lightweight slow and a medium weight slower and a heavy weight very slow, you're always gonna be at that weight. But if you take those weights and you do something called trick beat kill, you trick the heaviest weights, you beat the medium heavies, and you kill the mediums. And you just take that template and keep moving it up. Trick beat kill, uh, which you know through a vocabulary seems to describe just how we approach resistance and to move it as fast as you can. And that's gonna actually build strength. That's what strength is to me. Yeah, uh, can I make a comment on that, Rocco? You with every great person of strength, real strength, every single one of them was explosive. Now, there's this myth out there that the, 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 the strong men and women, the power lifters, are, are sort of like the dump trucks, the grinders. They can carry heavy loads with the dump trucks of the athlete world. You got to be kidding me. Every single real strength athlete that I know of is explosive. They have to be to get that urgency of neural drive, to densify, to get the strength. And I know you can sprint, or you could. You were fast out of the blocks. At one time, school record, of course. Back in the there, you, there, there you go. Every single strength athlete that I know of who can create that neural drive is an explosive athlete. They have got a good vertical jump. Uh, and they know how to, you know, just everything you put together, all of the points that you've made on the urgency, the, uh, uh, the well, you know, and again, I, I go back to other greats like Vasily Alexiev. Everything, everything was done at speed. So, you know, he would rip a bar off the ground that would be 20% of his competitive load and throw it into the air explosively as fast as he possibly could. All he was doing was getting that charge of neural drive and teaching his brain to think it, carry it down the nerves and express it in the muscles. And, you know, look at his vertical jump. Boom. Doc, I would love to have been coached at 10 years old by someone like you. I rode my 20 inch bicycle a lot. My friend who had a three-speed, and I would go out on 10-mile rides. I would ride right with him at 25 miles an hour. We had a track meet, and we had the 50, 100, and 400. I lost the 50 to a kid who had failed twice. He was two years older than me, maybe three. <laughs> and I won the 400. I snuck into the gym the next day, and I could hear my teacher, Mr. Nas, lifting his weights. And as I knocked on the door, he allowed me to come in and observe. And I watched him doing his pressing. He was a man who looked like a shredded frog on Friday night, was knocking the softball out of the park every single time. And I watched him do his presses. He went 150, 175, 185. He weighed 195 and he wanted to do that. He stopped at 190 and he missed. He was angry and identified with an angry man, just like my father over the years. So I was kind of quiet. He started to put his weights away. And I said, can I try my weight? At 10 years old and 110 pounds, I took that barbell 
to my shoulders and over my head like it was a pillow. And I could have done it five times. When I'm speaking in front of groups 10 times in a day, 27 times in three days in Seattle, Washington to inspire youth to be a champion, to be a winner, a conqueror, an overcomer, I think of the words that came out of his mouth. He said to me, Kazmanat, hmm, I'm an astronaut. No, that's my Instagram account. Sorry <laughs> uh, he said, all right, Bill, now you can leave and don't come back. 10 years old, that speed, power. In high school, I set the school record in the 600 and the 100 and the shot put when the President's Council for Physical Fitness and still had no coaching, literally, from the late 60s. But there was a movement back then. It's not just similar to the movement now. It was that one of Haight-Ashbury, Kent State, Madison, Wisconsin. Tune in, turn on, and drop out. And uh, so the word was anti-disestablishmentarianism. All we thought about was like, society sucks, and uh, there is no future. Kids were hopeless. Wherever I go and talk to young people, I try to tell them that if they can master the physical culture and balance their life with education and a healthy lifestyle, they can really accomplish many, many things. And that's just such an important message that I wasn't taught, but I learned through attrition. So that's, that's what I try to share. And I hope that I can reach to some of the people who are viewing today and let them understand why do we lift the weights? Why do we do what we do? It, to me, it was as if I was a ship in a sea, an old sailing ship from the 1700s. And my period of purpose was simple. It was to, to teach young people to be kind, caring, sharing, forgiving, understanding, respectful, responsible, and loving. And my sails were pinned against my mast. And I had gale winds in my sails. And I moved rapidly from coast to coast around the world. Others who are doing things in a selfish manner. I was selfless all the time, wherever I am. And if you're doing things that you, your period of purpose is more for the, for the self, there's no wind in your sails and you might as well just leave them down and rolled up because you're not going to get anywhere. So I think it's really important that the things that you do and when you really want something really bad that uh, to a high degree and you dedicate yourself towards it, there's got to be a purpose there. And like yourself, it's such a great education. Everywhere you go, people are just pinned back in their seats, learning and gaining the knowledge, reading your books and having a complete comprehension of everything that you talk about. I only wish I would have been disciplined enough to be a student. And I probably would have then read a lot more. And <laughs> more. Uh, may, may I, Rocco? Uh, I, I, uh, at the last Real Swiss that we had live in Toronto, uh, I got to introduce the winner of the Lifetime Achievement Award in uh, strength, and it was Bill Kazmaier. And, and when I was introducing him, I looked around the room and I hadn't mentioned his name yet. And I said, but this individual, I have never heard anyone ever say a bad word about. I introduced Bill Kazmaier. You're talking about Bill Pearl. <laughs> <laughs> well, Bill is a fabulous personality, no question. But anyway, I just wanted to put that in there for uh, Bill. I've never, ever, Bill, heard a, a bad negative word, ever. Thank you. A shout out to Bill Pearl. The keys to the inner universe in his Encyclopedia of Bodybuilding. 
the book to have for everyone growing up. He had 50 different exercises for every muscle group. The guy gave so much back to the physical culture. I believe he is, and always will be, the greatest bodybuilder of all times. He was strong, had a physique that was rough and rugged. He was drug-free and uh, literally freakish in his interest in helping others and being selfless. A lot of training at four in the morning. I tried to bury him out in Bend, Oregon in a workout about 15 years ago or more. I was in pretty good shape. He was getting on in years. I went as fast as I could, used the whole stack, went as heavy as I could. He was right with me. He maybe not used the same weight, but I couldn't, I couldn't put him down. Uh, what a remarkable guy. And and such a nice man as to boot. He's a, another guy I've never heard anything bad about. <laughs> the same category. You are really a gem. Well, uh, appreciate that. Thanks, Bill. Um, I know you both are really busy. Uh, actually, Kaz is presenting today at the, where the uh, World Giants. Giants left today. The World Tour. Oh, I wish I was there. They're gonna love you. <laughs> Spread the word, brother. <laughs> Any of your listeners can uh, get a hold of me at. Uh, in, on Instagram at Kazmanaut, K-A-Z-M-A-N-A-U-G-H-T, like an astronaut, but riding the ship of Kaz. And uh, I'll be posting more on there as time comes forward. But I would surely like to have a list. Maybe listeners would write in questions of what they would like you as the professor and the master to explain and Kaz to offer a little bit of practical on his experience and see if we couldn't do this again sometime. Thank oh, you so it's, much. yeah. I would love that very much. Thanks for putting this together, Rocco. It's my pleasure. And thank you because yeah. I'm learning from uh, two legends at the moment. And I really appreciate your, uh, both of your time. Okay. Well, thanks so much. Great to see you in uh, Fit, Vim, and Vigor, Bill and Rocco. Thank you uh, so much for all that you contribute to, in putting these sorts of things together. Thank you, sir. Thank you, so thank much. you Dr. Stuart McGill. Thank You're the you. master. Okay. Cheers to your both. Bye-bye. Have a good one.